All right, so we're going to cover chapters two and three. We've been taking smaller chunks up until this point, and so we're not going to read through uh, all those chapters. And I'm also going to come at chapters two and three probably differently than maybe you've uh, studied it before. Um, if you've ever heard a series uh, preached or taught on Revelation, it's, it's going to be different than probably what you've heard before. And, and you'll understand why I'm doing this as, as we get into it. It's, uh, you know, I gave you guys the blog that I wrote. I started it, I think, in January and blogged through the entire book of Revelation. And even it's different than the way I'm going to approach it this morning. Because the, the more I study it, the, the more I think God's showing me that the focus of this book is Jesus. And you may think, well, that's obvious, but it's really not. And it's amazing when you study commentaries and you start looking into them and digging deeper, you, you see that we get the focus off of him so quickly and we make it about us. We always make it about us. And so what I want to do this morning is take these uh, seven messages to the seven churches and show how what I believe was Jesus trying to help these churches understand, get your gaze back on me, focus on me, not your problems, not your not the good things you do, not the bad things you do, but focus on me. So that'll make more sense as we move along. So here's what I want to remind you of, that we're in this section. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 19, that's the outline for the book. And we're at the point where he said, write the things that are. You remember, there were three different parts to this outline. The first was, write the things you have seen. That's chapter 1. What did he see? He saw that vision of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man walking among the lampstands. Then he saw his face, he saw his robe, he saw the golden sash. He, he fell on his face as if dead. And then he sees Jesus and hears Jesus speak to him. He's supposed to write that. And then he says, write the things that are. That's what we're going to cover this morning, chapters two and, two and chapter three. And then we'll spend the rest of our time together talking about uh, over the next weeks, the things that are to come, the chapter four through chapter 22, those future things. But this morning, we're going to look at the things that are. So he's writing to these seven churches and he's writing about current things going on in these churches. Okay. They're, that's why he says things that are, it's the end of the first century. John's on the Island of Patmos and he's been give, given this vision and he's going to write it down. And part of what happens is it gets disseminated to these seven particular churches, seven literal churches. And that's important for us to remember because not everybody believes that and not everybody teaches that about this book. And, and that's important for us because they're real and they exist in real time and therefore their circumstances are real and not symbolic. They're, they're not just representations of things that might happen, could happen, they did happen. So these are real people, part of real congregations in real cities in real time. And, and that's something we need to understand. Are they symbolic? Yes, in a way they are. Because if you've read through chapters two, two and chapter three, you've seen these seven churches and, and you can see parts of what they're experiencing in everyday life right here, right now. And, and so they are symbolic, they are representative, but we can't lose sight of the fact that they're real and not symbolic. Why is that important? 
If you remember, we talked in week one that there's four interpretive models that are used to decipher this book. And one is this thing called the historical model. And the way they look at the book of Revelation is they look at it as history of the church. It's not future oriented. It's just looking at the history of the church over time from Pentecost forward up until now. And the longer the Lord tarries, it'll just extend out. So it's historical in nature. And it's the way they unpack this book. And and I have a real problem with that because it, it just leaves it wide open and it really destroys the whole meaning of the book if you make it all historical and not prophetic in any way. What's really interesting, and I never knew this until I started really studying this in depth, is that this particular viewpoint came from the 16th century from a guy named Thomas Brightman. He was a Puritan. And if you remember our study on the Reformation, um, that was a pretty volatile time in the history of the church because of all the rebellion and reformation coming because of things happening in the Catholic church. And these, these men, Puritans and others, reformers, were speaking against the excesses of the Catholic church. And so this guy came up with this interpretive view of the book of Revelation. And it's probably based on, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's pretty safe to say that he, along with Calvin and Zwingli and Martin Luther, were all claiming that the Pope was the Antichrist. So they were using the book of Revelation to look at current events and going, hey, the description of the Antichrist looks like him. And they were coming out and saying it. You're the Antichrist. And well, were they right? No, they were wrong. And yet they continued to look at the book of Revelation and look at it from from their perspective And this guy came up with this model. And what he did is he took the seven churches, what I just said are seven literal churches, and he turned them into um, examples of the history of the church. And here's how he unpacked it. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But he said, Ephesus is the apostolic age from Pentecost forward until the death of the apostles. Smyrna is the persecution of the church through AD 313, when... Nero and others began to persecute the church. Pergamum was the compromise church, lasting until about 500. That's when you started having all the, the growth of the Catholic church and the papacy, and they had the papal schism. You had three popes at one time and all this stuff going on. Thyatira, the rise of the papacy all the way to the Reformation. Sardis is the age of the Reformation, which is when this guy would have been living, Thomas Brightman. Philadelphia is the age of evangelism when mission work began to happen and the church began to go around the world and grow. And then Laodicea is liberal churches in a present day context. In other words, it's, it's from now to eternity, whenever the Lord returns. So we would be in that last group. Now, this is fascinating, but it's highly flawed as far as I'm concerned. It, it makes a great outline, but it, if you look at it closely, you have to wonder, what, how, did, how did this help the seven churches in the first century, the end of the first century? It didn't help them all, at all. It, it's, it has nothing to do with these seven literal churches going through persecution and going through difficulty and struggling with false teaching and the pressures of life. It, it doesn't help them in any way. And it literally doesn't help me in any way either. And it also leads to, I think, some speculation 
that is, I think, dangerous anytime you get into the book of Revelation. It's an example of what I call retro interpretation. When you look at your current circumstances and you go backwards and you say, this is what they meant. This is what Revelation was trying to see. You know, it's interesting if you go and study um, World War II, who did they think the Antichrist was then? Hitler. Were they right? No. It's retro interpretation. It's looking at current circumstances and trying to decipher the book of Revelation by what you're looking at right in front of you. That's not the way to interpret the book. And so I, I just think this is a dangerous way to try to interpret what's already a very difficult book. And it takes away the universal application of the book. Because the truth is, every one of these seven churches have existed in terms of their problem over time. Laodicea is not just the liberal church that exists now. There, there was a literal liberal church in Laodicea then and over the centuries. And that type of church, like all the other churches, have always existed. You can go around this city and you will find every one of these kinds of churches existing right now, right here in Fort Worth. And you'll see characteristics of each of these churches in a single church. They exist. So this universal application is huge because we got to keep in mind, yeah, they're literal churches. The message was sent to them, but it disseminated to churches all around Asia Minor, Judea. It ended up at the church in Jerusalem. And over time, it ended up in every church like ours, like this morning, because of the book and the canon of scripture. So why these seven churches? We kind of touched on this week one. We really don't know why God chose these seven churches for this message, why Christ directed John to send it to these seven churches. We really don't know, but I believe it's because of the circumstances in those particular churches. If you go back and you read and you see the, the, what's going on, and I've given you a chart, a couple of charts um, to help you with this. And you can go back and look at these later, but one of the charts, um, this one in particular, is going to basically outline what their problem was. What's the circumstance? And that will kind of help you understand, but they're, they're going through particular circumstances that are all different, seven different circumstances. So I think that's why he chose them. And they're real. These are real life issues that are representative of issues that have been taking place for centuries. They're still alive and well in the church today. Faithfulness or lack of it, false teaching and the inability to see it, the tolerance of sin, how we put up with sin and we don't really call it out for what it is. So they're universal in nature. So I think what Jesus did is he looked at these seven churches all in close proximity, all in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, they're all within a concentric circle. And he says, within these seven churches in this one region are these seven issues that need to be dealt with. Remember, the number seven is the number of perfection or wholeness, completeness. So it's like he's saying, here's a glimpse of the problem in the church today. First century, 21st century. It's still going on. So seven scenarios. Now, I'm just going to give you this little outline. It's in your notes. You don't need to write it down. And we're not going to cover this this morning. You can study it in greater detail. And I covered it in the blog. 
because I'm going to come at it differently. But this is, if you want to look at these seven churches and what can we glean from them? Well, Ephesus, their problem was they loved orthodoxy. They loved rightness. They loved right doctrine. They loved right teaching. They loved the Bible. They loved rules and regulations, but they had lost their love for Christ and others. And guys, that is rampant today in a lot of places where legalism is alive and we're the, we're the right church. We have everything figured out. We know what's best, and, but we just don't love people. And if you'll come and be part of us, you need to be like us. And if you're not like us, you can get away from us. Well, that's their problem. How about Smyrna? They're the suffering church and there are suffering churches all over the world today, suffering for their faith. I don't know that there's a whole lot of them here in America, but they're all around the world in third world countries, China and other places. Pergamum, they're the worldly compromising church. That's a huge issue today where we just tolerate and we give in and we just become like the world. Thyatira, tolerating sin within the fellowship. You know, it is so easy for you and I as men to tolerate sin among men that we know. We see somebody who's struggling with alcohol or their marriage isn't going well and we just, I don't wanna say anything. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to speak into his life. I don't want to, I talked to a guy this week who is a member of this church, struggling with some issues in his life. And he said, I don't have one Christian friend who is willing to confront me about what I'm wrestling with. And that really, really bugs me. That we don't have the guts, that we don't have the compassion, that we don't have the wherewithal to step into another man's life and say, enough is enough. I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm not going to put up with it. And you shouldn't put up with it. How about this one? Sardis, the spiritually dead church. You think you're alive, but you're dead. You, you think you got your act together spiritually, but you're dead. And there are dead churches all over America, all over the world right now. Go to Go to Europe you'll see some beautiful buildings that are literally spiritually dead. Philadelphia, the only church that in, in this seven that's named as faithful, they're the faithful church. And I think there are faithful churches. I think we're one of them. Doesn't mean we're a perfect church. Doesn't mean we do everything right. But I do think we attempt to be faithful to the word of God and to what we've been called to do. Then there's Laodicea, the lukewarm, useless church. Jesus said of this church, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you make me want to vomit. That's literally what he meant. You make me sick to my stomach. Be either hot or cold but don't be in the middle. Don't play this game. And so here we have these seven scenarios, seven real scenarios going on in real time at the end of the first century. But guess what? They haven't gone away. They haven't changed. They haven't been fixed. We still struggle with these same, same things, right? But here's, here's the problem I have with the way we typically interpret chapters two and chapters three. We go and we look at these seven churches and we see what did they do well what did they do poorly? What did Jesus commend? And what did he condemn? And then what do we do with that? Well, I got to do more of this. I got, I got, I got to, I want to be commended. So I got to, I got to change the way I'm doing things so that I can have more commendation because I don't want to be condemned. We go and we look for ways to change our behavior. Now, is that necessarily wrong? No. But it misses the point, I think, of what Jesus is trying to say to these seven churches. 
Each message to these churches contain these elements, okay? And they, this is important. They start out with a characteristic of Jesus. And this is something I never noticed before. I never saw it, never bothered to think about it. I just blew right past it. And it's the way he introduces himself. And that's what we're going to talk in just a minute. Then he gives them a commendation. At least six of the churches get a commendation. One doesn't get one at all. He gives them a correction or a condemnation. You need to change this problem. I have this problem with you and it needs to be fixed. Then he says, I give you a challenge, something to do, a step to take, and then a call to hear and obey. He actually says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, but that word here has tied to it obedience. Doesn't do any good to hear and not obey. You gotta hear and obey. So these are the things that he says to these churches. And what we do is we look at them and we go, okay, what do I need to change? What do I need to do? How can I be better? Either as an individual or as a church. And again, that's not necessarily bad, but I think it misses the point. So what I want to do is I'm just going to take this first one and look at it. And I've given you the second chart, which will outline all seven churches. And you'll see where I'm going in just a second. So it starts out to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. This should remind you of something. What? Chapter one, verses nine through 20, which we looked at last week. See, he, he introduces himself and he says something that he said to John in the vision that John had. And it's from chapter one, verse 16. I never have seen this before. I've, I probably saw it. I just didn't recognize it. And it didn't mean anything to me until I started looking in depth. And then I saw that, hey, wait a minute. John was looking out and he, he sees this vision. He sees the lampstands. He sees one like the son of man walking among the lampstands. And he starts talking about what he sees. He, was, he had white hair. He had on a robe. He had on a golden sash. His hair was gleaming white. He glowed like the sun in midday. He had feet like burnished bronze. He starts to describe this guy and he falls on his feet as if dead. He faints. And then Jesus, with his right hand, lifts him up. Then he says, I am the first and the last and then he says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I was dead, but I'm alive now forevermore. So John's description, Jesus' description. And in every one of these seven churches, he starts out cherry picking from what John saw and from what he said. And you have to ask the question, why? And why is it different for every church? Well, my contention is what he says about himself is directly tied to the problem the church is having. And see, what we do is we blow past it. We don't listen to what Jesus says about himself. We listen to what Jesus says about the church, and then we try to make it all about us. And the whole point of this is Jesus. Remember, I told you week one, this whole book is about Jesus. And if you start making the book about you, you've missed the point. So he says he holds these things in his hands. And that word in the Greek is kriteo. And it, it literally means he's, he's grasping and it's an idea of power. It's the idea of control, sovereign control. And, and so he's telling this church in Ephesus that I am in control. I have the seven angels in my hand. Now, what are the seven angels? Well, you may sit there and go, well, seven angels. Well, is it? 
This is one of those areas about the book of Revelation where you can read commentary after commentary and get opinion after opinion. And I always get fascinated with how we debate over things that seem fairly plain, but obviously aren't plain because we come up with so many different directions. So what are the views on this? Well, the two typical views are either these are angels and they get that from the fact that the word is angel, egalos, but it can also be translated as messenger. So who are these seven people, things, beings that he's holding in his hand? What's he talking about? Well, they're either heavenly beings, angels, and there are some who say that they're the guardian angels of the seven churches. The problem with that is I know of no place in scripture that describes guardian angels for churches. I hope there are, but I don't know that if you held a gun to my head, I could prove it through scripture. So are they heavenly beings? Or are they human leaders? That's the other view. This is the view that I take. I think they're human leaders. And I'll show you why. If they're angels, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now he says seven times to the angel of the church, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. He just goes through the list. To each of these angels, right? Seven different angels. But why would Jesus tell John to tell an angel something? Why would Jesus go through a human medium to speak to someone who's of a heavenly nature? That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. And then when you start digging into what he tells John to write to these angels, it most certainly doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus tell John to tell an angel to repent? Why would Jesus tell John to tell them to be faithful unto death when angels don't die, to hold fast to what you have until I come? Why would he tell them they're dead? Why would he say you have little power when angels have power? Why would he say you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind and naked? So you gotta go back and look at what he says, write to the angel of the church these things. I don't think the message fits the recipient. So who's he talking to? I think he's writing to the leaders of those local churches. And the word agalos in Greek is a common term used to speak of pastors, elders, teachers within this context. Look at Matthew eleven ten. This is of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger Agalos before your, your face who will prepare your way before you. Who's this talking about? John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist an angel? No, he was a man. Just like you and me, he just dressed weird. He's, he's not an angel, but it's the same word, messenger. We have this in John 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, Agalos, greater than the one who sent him. Who's speaking? Jesus. Who's he speaking to? Disciples. Were they angels? Far from it. Very human, but he's saying, you guys are going to be my messengers. You're going to be my emissaries. You're going to be my ambassadors when I leave. These men were represent, representatives of Christ. Philippians 2.25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger. Your agalos to minister to my need. In other words, Epaphroditus was part of the Philippian church. He was their messenger. He was their, one of their leaders in their local church. So I think what 
Jesus is telling John is to write to the leaders of these churches and give them this message. Remember it told us in chapter one, if you read this, you're blessed. How did these letters get disseminated to the seven churches? Through a messenger, an agalos, who went back to his local church. He read what John wrote, the book of Revelation. He was blessed for doing so. They were blessed for hearing it and they were all blessed if they obeyed it. I think that's what we're hearing here. So you see, again, he's writing to, I think, leaders in the local church, and he's describing himself in a certain way. Don't lose sight of that. Every opening of every one of these seven messages is Jesus using one of the descriptions from chapter one to describe himself. Look at uh, his words to Smyrna. He says, This is the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, that should remind you of something. It takes us back to Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, where he said, I'm the first and the last. Why this church? Why does he say first and last when he talks about this particular church? What's going on? It fits the problem that they're having. He's eternal. He's the one who died and came back to life. Why is that important? Well, he tells this particular church, you're going to suffer and some of you are going to die. But guess what? I died and I came back to life. And that's your hope. Don't worry about death. Don't worry about suffering. I suffered all the way to death and I guarantee you victory. See, he starts out with a description of him. He doesn't go straight to their problem. He describes himself, exposes their problem, and then he talks about eternity in every single case, all seven. But what do we focus on? What are they doing wrong? Because I don't want to do what they're doing. It's not what they're doing that's the issue. It's what they've taken their eyes off of. It's who they've taken their eyes off of. That aspect of Jesus, seven different aspects of Jesus that every one of us in this room have taken our eyes off of at one time or another. We've lost sight of Jesus. How about the Pergamum? He says, the words of him who has the two, two sharp two-edged sword, that vision of the sword coming out of his mouth has always bugged me. It's weird and it's kind of scary. It, it almost makes me gag. That it doesn't sound good, but we saw that it's actually a positive for those who are in Christ. But he's going back to what? Revelation 1, verse 16. What did John see when he sees this guy walking among the lampstands? He sees this sword coming out of his mouth. And it scares him, it worries him. But what he needs to understand, and I think what he did come to understand, was that that sword is two edged because it, do, it, go, it cuts both ways. It judges and it justifies. See, the words of Jesus are what justifies us. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he speaks on our behalf. He intercedes for us. That's my son. That's my child. But if you're outside of Christ, it judges. He saves, but he also strikes down. He defends and he destroys. See, I don't need to worry about the judging, the striking, the destroying because I'm in Christ, that sword doesn't scare me. It actually protects me. But if for those outside of Christ, it's a scary proposition. They should be scared, they should be worried. And, and that particular issue, because he goes on in that message of that church and he talks about his words. I will bring judgment. 
if you don't listen. See, they had taken their eyes off of him, that aspect of him. How about Thyatira? The words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Once again, he goes back into Revelation 1, verses 14 and 15. He picks a particular description of himself and he uses it. Eyes like a flame of fire. And we said that's his penetrating vision. He sees all. Nothing escapes his vision. Why would that be encouraging to this church? Because they were going through difficulty and he saw it all. Don't worry. Some of you are going through difficult times. He sees what you're going through. You don't have to inform him. Now I'm not telling you not to pray, but I think sometimes we spend more time telling God about our problem than asking him for his help when he already knows my problem. What he's looking for is, do you need me? Do you want me? Are you going to trust me? And so he tells them, I see everything. Nothing escapes my vision. I see the wicked in your church. I see the good in your church. I am in control. Then he talks about his feet. Remember that picture of feet like burnished bronze. They're shiny. They're powerful. The, the king in those days and age would sit on a dais on a throne and everybody was beneath him. And it's this picture of power, authority, sovereignty, and ultimately judgment. Now, do you and I need to fear that if we're in Christ? No. But there are those around us. And what he's telling this church is, I sit in authority. And those within your church that are not living the way they should live, who are not in Christ and who are faking it, will be judged. Don't worry about it. Those who are persecuting you will be judged. Don't worry about it. You just keep your eyes on me. You just trust me because I'm holy, I'm pure, and I'm just in all my judgment. Trust me. So once again, why does he open up this way? Because he's trying to get this church to refocus their attention on him. How about Sardis? The words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He reaches back into verse four of chapter one. Why? He says seven spirits. We, de we determined week one, the seven spirits are the perfectness of the spirit of God. It's the seven sevenfold spirit of God. And so he's telling this church that I have already given you my spirit in its fullness. You have all the spirit you need. That means power. That means wisdom. That means direction. But he's also given them leadership within the church. I've given you my spirit and I am represented in, in your church by the spirit who indwells you. See, every guy in this room is in Christ has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And as a church body, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And he's telling this particular church that you've got to remember that I hold the Spirit. I gave you the Spirit. I'm the one who gave him to you. And you can trust in him as my representative. He's got the seven stars. We trust that this ties back into Revelation 1 verse 16. Those seven leaders that we just talked about. See, what we sometimes forget is that God puts leaders, not only kings on thrones, but he, put pat, he puts pastors in pulpits. Now, you may say, well, not in the last church I went to. I'm not sure where that guy came from. Well, here, here's my argument. Are there a lot of lousy leaders on podiums all across the world? You bet. But the scriptures say God put them there. It doesn't mean that every one of them is good at what they do or necessarily godly or necessarily just and righteous. It just says that ultimately God's in control and you can trust him. 
So even in those churches where the leaders are not what they're supposed to be, God put them there. So he says, Jesus has these things, the spirit of God and these leaders given to you by Christ. He gave you the spirit. He gave you leaders. Rest in that. Trust him for that. Even if your leader is not what you think he or she should be, you should trust God because God's in control. What, is, what do we learn from Paul in Ephesians? These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, here's my contention. is You look around the world today, you look around this community today, you look at churches in the city of Fort Worth today, and guess what? There are churches with lousy pastors. And yet here I'm telling you that Jesus put them there. I think in many cases, Jesus put them there because it's what they deserve. Who put Saul on the throne? The people? No, Jesus. I mean, God. See, the people said, we want a king like all the other nations. And what, who did he give them? Saul. And he ended up being exactly what they asked for. He even warned them. If I give you what you want, this is what's going to happen. That's what we want. Okay, here he is. He picked him. He put him there. He was a lousy leader. That made God a poor HR head? No. He just gave them what they want. I think we have pulpits filled all over the city, all over the world with men who don't deserve to be there, but they're exactly what the people deserve. So, this idea of he's given leadership to the church, he's given the spirit to the church, is a reminder to that church, trust me, focus on me. Then we look at Philadelphia, he says, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens up and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. That drives us right back to chapter one, verse 18. I hold the death, uh, keys of death and Hades. See, he's already conquered death and the grave He's already conquered Hades in the sense that you and I will not go there. But he's trying to tell this particular church, keep your eyes focused on that. I've been victorious. You will make it. And then he tells them, I'm holy. I'm, I'm, I'm unique. I'm one of a kind. I'm like God the Father. You can trust me. I have power. I have authority. I can do what only God can do because I am God. Even the disciples saw that. You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, sometimes I think, guys, we lose sight of Jesus being holy and being God, and we start to panic. And he just becomes this wonderful man who lived 2,000 years ago, but he doesn't have a whole lot of relevance for today. And I think he's trying to get this church to recognize that, yes, I died and I left, but I'm sitting at the right hand of God. I am God and I am here to help. You can trust me. He says, I'm true. I'm authentic. I'm real. And we know from scripture that he declared himself to be truth itself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You can trust him. See, within the church today is a lot of falsehood. How do you spot falsehood? By knowing the truth keeping your eyes focused on Jesus. But if you're not focusing on Jesus, you will always get sucked into the lie. And that's something we constantly have to watch out for in our personal lives, but also in the life of the church. Finally, the words of the amen. This is to Laodicea, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
Ties us back to Revelation 1, verse 5. Once again, he's reaching backwards and he's using that particular description of himself, the faithful witness, the amen. The word amen literally means yes, so be it, true. That's why if you go to a black church and people say amen, or you go to an old-fashioned Baptist church, people say amen. I grew up Baptist, and I remember men in our church were always saying amen. As a kid, I always wrestled with, why are they doing that? It's kind of weird. My dad would be preaching away, and they'd go, amen, amen. And I finally, when I got to be about 18, I realized that they were saying amen when my dad made a point that they wanted to apply to somebody other than them. I mean, I guarantee it. Amen, pastor. Yeah, speak at them. Yeah, they need to hear that because it doesn't have anything to do with me. Amen. That's not what the word means. It's yes, I agree. I'm faithful. I'm sure. I'm true. You can trust me. And see, he's trying to get this church to understand that I'm the amen. I'm, I'm the end, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm the truth. Come to me. Look at me. Don't panic. Then he says, I'm the beginning of all things. He's the originator of all creation. Nothing was created that was not created by him. We can trust him. See, what drives me crazy is that we, we go and we look at the problems in these churches and they still exist. Why do they still exist? Because people keep taking their eyes off him. We're not gonna fix these problems. Unfaithfulness, wickedness, tolerance, we're not going to fix it until we get serious about him. So when you read these chapters, focus on him. That's why this is so critical. It's the main point of these two chapters. It's what he's trying to tell them. It's what he's trying to him. Quit focusing on the behavior of the church. What did they do right? What did they do wrong? No, focus on what did he do? Focus on who he is. And it will change who you are as a church. Jesus is mainly emphasizing himself. And what's really interesting, next week, we're going to move into chapter four in the scene in heaven. And guess what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy. The whole two and three is bookended by this vision of John, blown away, falling on his face, and then chapter four, the angels and the elders singing, holy, holy, holy. It's all about Jesus. It ain't about you. It's not about Christ Chapel. It's about him. The success or failure of the church is directly tied to their understanding of who he is. And we will fail as a church the minute we take our eyes off of him. It'll happen. It's a guarantee. That's why he goes on and he talks about their works, your toil, your patient endurance. You cannot bear those who are evil, but who have tested those who call themselves apostles. He has some good things to say about these churches, and that's great. But what he tells them is, you, you're able to see those who are evil. How do you spot evil? How do you know what evil is? By knowing what goodness is. By knowing the truth. By knowing righteousness. See, they were able to do that because they had kept their eye to a certain degree focused on him. How were they able to call those who call themselves apostles and are not, how did they see them as false? Because they knew what truth looked like. See, that's what we got to watch out for. There are false apostles all over the place, even in our church, people who don't believe the truth and are here for the wrong reasons. How do you spot them? Because you know the truth as shown in Jesus Christ. 
because they knew the one who held the seven stars, who holds the spirit of God and the leadership of God, what a true leader should look like, they were able to see falsehood and they dealt with it. But if you take your eyes off Jesus, guess what? You'll invite every false teacher that exists because you won't recognize it for what it is. That's why there are a lot of popular false teachers all over the country, filling buildings and selling books with TV shows, jets, because people have taken their eyes off Jesus and put it on a man. And we've got to be careful of that. He tells another church, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Why? That ought to scare everybody in this room because what he's saying is, I'm going to remove your effectiveness as a church. That doesn't mean he's going to destroy that church. There are churches all around the city of Fort Worth that are still in existence, still have people coming, still have people giving. They have no effectiveness for the kingdom of God. They may do a lot of good social things, but they've lost their effectiveness And that is the worst thing that can happen to a church. See, Jesus is the one who walks among those churches, among the lampstands, and he threatens to remove their effectiveness because the church is the body of Christ. The church represents him, and he's doing it because they lost their first love. They took their eyes off the prize. They started focusing on the wrong thing. And in some cases, they loved the local church more than they loved Jesus, the one who started the church. They loved orthodoxy more than they loved God. And so we got to be really careful of this. And all throughout this book, and we're going to wrap it up, all throughout these seven churches, he always begins with a description of himself. He ends with a promise of eternity and the call to conquer. The call to conquer. We as men love that, right? I I want to conquer. I want to conquer. I'm going to get this. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take the hill. I'm going to, we love the idea of conquer, and it sounds like something I'm supposed to do. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Greek means to overcome. It means to get the victory. But here's the issue. The victory's already been accomplished. This isn't about you looking at these seven churches, taking the positive steps and doing them, avoiding the negative steps. This is focusing on Jesus and that he's already conquered. It's what he's done, not what you have to do. Scott Duvall says the term overcome plays an important role in revelation to the victorious or overcomers in each congregation. Jesus promises future blessings. What does he promise to them? Eternal life, provision, justice, participation in Christ's victory, and the very presence of God. See, he's already given us those things. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to dig for it. I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to conquer because he's already conquered. He's already accomplished everything that's going to be done. And at the end of every seven churches statement to them, it says, you got a reward coming. Focus on the reward. Focus on who Jesus is and what he's done. And you'll survive what's in the middle. You'll do better at what you're supposed to do. Don't fall in love with orthodoxy. Don't fall in love with the local church. I like this church. I kind of love this church. But when I love this church more than I love Jesus Christ, I got it out of whack. When I talk more about the leadership of this church than I talk about the leader of this church, I got it out of whack. When I worship the pastor more than I worship the shepherd, the the great shepherd, the good shepherd, I got it out of whack. And I think that's what he's telling these churches. It's about love for Christ. So I've given you these charts. We're not going to go through them. 
I want you to look at them later, and they will summarize what I just did on a couple of the churches, how he starts out with the description of himself, everything he has to say to him. He's going to give his commendation, his condemnation, his challenge, and his call. I want you to go back and look at those one day this week. But the main thing I want you to realize, guys, is that Jesus goes out of his way to tell these people about him. He introduces himself in a particular way to these seven churches. And by virtue of the fact that we have this book, he's telling you this morning, this is who I am. Never forget that. So here's your discussion questions. Why do you think the vision that John saw in chapter one plays such a prominent role in this, these two chapters? Why did Jesus use these visions to describe himself? Secondly, in what ways does the church get itself into trouble by losing sight of who Christ is and what he's done? Maybe you went to a church that did that. I'm not asking you to bash your former church. What I am asking you to do is be realistic and, and give examples of when you get your eyes off of him, what happens to the church. Not you personally, but corporately. Then finally, seven different times he speaks of the need to overcome or conquer. Why did he stress this so much? Why do we need to conquer when he's already conquered? What's he telling you and I? What's he saying to you and me today? Father, I thank you for the, the men in this room. I thank you for their faithfulness to come every Thursday morning and be here and listen to me, but hopefully they're hearing from you. I pray this morning, Father, that we would not walk away from this time together without a greater desire to see your son more clearly, to lean on him more strongly, to rely on him more fervently for everything that we need. He has accomplished it all. He is the first and the last. He has died and rose again. He has conquered the grave. He has done everything that needs to be done. I just need to keep focused on him. And Father, this whole book is about what he's going to do. And may we never lose sight of that. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.